Good morning. Today is Monday, October 10th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thank you for listening and gathering around God's Word with us this morning. Whether you tune in over the air or you stream online or download the show as a podcast, it doesn't matter to me. I'm just glad you're here. Settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. And as I always begin the show, I'd like to mention our wonderful sponsor, that is the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. We are underwritten and supported by LHF, and they translate, publish, and distribute books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. Learn more about them at lhfmissions.org. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show, or you just want to drop me a line, you know the drill. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. And I begin the show on Fridays by pulling from the listener email bag. So be sure to tune in for that. Well, let's get to our topic this morning. It is such an important one. And this comes to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. The apostle turns to that most important of all Christian teachings, the gospel of Jesus's perfect life, his blessed death and his burial, but also the resurrection. You know, this is too often a neglected tenet of our faith, and St. Paul addresses it here all throughout chapter 15, but we're just going to cover the first 11 verses. And to help us in this endeavor, I'm pleased to welcome as my guest, the Reverend Aaron Stinnett, pastor of Our Redeemer Lutheran Church of Smithfield, Rhode Island. Pastor Stinnett, welcome to Thy Strong Word. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So you were there in the New England district, which I served in just a couple of years ago. I served there for seven years in Connecticut. Now you are in Rhode Island. So tell me a little bit, tell us all a little bit about yourself, your ministry, and what God is doing through you and the saints there at Redeemer and Smithfield. I'd be happy to. So um, Rhode Island, well, as you know, from having been in New England, Rhode Island is not really very Lutheran country. Uh, Lutheranism is largely unknown to most of the people here. In fact, it's really a largely unchurched area, um, to some degree heavily Catholic, but um, many of those are more, um, you could say, social Catholics rather than um, very active in their faith. So it's a largely unchurched area and uh, certainly a very uh, an area where Lutheranism is largely unknown. But so I'm blessed to have been called to serve in a, in a, in a Lutheran church that is very faithful, uh, that's very committed to uh, the word and to getting the word out to people, to keeping the message straight and getting the message out and uh, sharing the message and mercy of Christ with the people around us. And People don't think about it, but, you know, New England is very much a frontier. It's a mission, uh, a mission area. Oh, it is. Yeah. And it, it's uh, thankfully God has been bringing some people to us. We can't certainly can't take the credit for it, but he's brought some people to us. You know, there people are uh, there are people out there who have not heard the gospel, uh, who uh, just love when they finally hear it and receive it. And so we're blessed to be able to uh, share that with the people around us and encourage one another in the faith. Uh, it's a privilege to be serving in this area and with this particular group of people. Oh, that's wonderful. And we are so blessed to have pastors like you in those areas. 
you know, I kind of found my way back into the middle of the country, which is definitely Lutheran country, no doubt about it. And it's uh, mm-hmm. it's just different, you know, but the Lord gives us these amazing different opportunities to use our various types of skills wherever he needs us. And the Lord knows what he is doing. And I'm blessed to know that you are out there in New England. It was uh, President Yaden, the late President Yaden, who's with the Lord now. He used to say, it is the best district in the Senate. Now, I'm not going to argue that on his behalf, especially with so many listening from different districts. But, you know, I would say it's a great group of guys out there because it's smaller, because the pastors tend to know each other or at least get to know each other. There's definitely a family feel out there. Yeah, it's it's a great place to be. And our, our new president, President Bynke, also uh, reiterates that message from President Yaden that he does consider this, you know, the best district in Lutheran Church. Every, I guess you could say every district in its own way could be considered the best because there's something special about each place. Um, but certainly this is a, a wonderful place to be serving. That's true. And President Bynke is an excellent man, and I'm sure it's a pleasure to serve out there with his help. Yeah, absolutely. So before we uh, dig into the text, I'd like to invite you to start us off in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, we thank you for the words that you give us and through which you speak to us today. By your word and spirit, direct our hearts to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lift us up and strengthen us with the good news that our Redeemer lives and help us to know the comfort that that sweet sentence gives. In the saving name of Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Holy Bible. I think I'm going to read all 11 verses, and we may reread them after the break to refresh our memory. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached... And so you believed. All right, a wonderful text by St. Paul. You can really hear his attitude coming through, both his desire to proclaim the gospel of Christ, but also, I think, you know, his struggles with what he had done persecuting the church. You can also hear him acknowledging how his apostleship has been questioned, and you can even hear maybe just a little bit of the way he brags, but then sometimes has to quickly correct himself and turn the attention back to God. It's just a beautiful text from Paul, the man, the apostle, and it's very consistent with what we've heard from him already. 
But brother, he begins with 15, and I would remind you, your brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Well, where has he been? Where is he going? You know, uh, this is where he's at now, but, you know, some other things have led up to this. Why don't you catch us up, maybe? Yeah, so that, this is a great text because he does really come back to focusing uh, our hearts directly on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's it's interesting how um, when you look at 1 Corinthians, that's that's how he opens and closes the book. You know, with with this chapter, chapter 15, we're coming to the, really the last major section of the book. There's, there is one more chapter after it, but that's largely some greetings and final instructions. But in terms of his proclamation, this is the final major section. And he chooses to end on the message of the gospel itself. And that's also right where he had begun the letter. Uh, in chapter one, he was speaking about how uh, the gospel, the message of the cross is, you know, it's uh, foolishness to some, a stumbling block to others, uh, but, uh, but that we preach Christ crucified. Um, and so he was directing people, directing the Corinthians then and us now to the gospel at the beginning. And then after addressing a number of particular subjects that had come up in the life of the church, uh, as he is coming near to uh, the end of his letter, he wants to conclude again with, just as he began, with what's most important. And so uh, he kind of keeps the main thing, the main thing, um, as he began with the gospel, focusing on Christ crucified. Now he essentially concludes with the gospel uh, with Christ crucified and risen. And so it's a, it's a wonderful gospel text. Uh, and it's a way of him when we see that that's how he chose to end, begin and end this letter, uh, that tells you something about the priority that it had to him. You know, we do hear it in, in these verses where he says directly that this is a, a matter of first importance, but we also just see that emphasis that that was the first thing he wanted to talk them to them about, and that was the last message that, that he wanted them to hear from him as this letter closes. Yeah, and, and that makes Paul a pretty good Lutheran, right? Because he begins with a, a nod to the gospel, naturally. But the book of Corinthians, as we've all discovered over the past many weeks as we've gone through it, is filled with a lot of instruction, a lot of admonishment for wrong beliefs, for improper practices, for not loving one's neighbor, for valuing the things of the world as opposed to the things of God. But here, at the end, he continues to call them brothers. He continues to point to the gospel, which is salvific. So if if you were... A Corinthian, and you were listening to all of these instructions, I think you'd feel, well, I think you'd feel pretty bad. You'd feel pretty beat up, even if you weren't involved in some of the things that he's mentioned. And in part, that's probably, you know, part of God's intention. But Paul's intention too, you know, to break them down, to remove from them their self-reliance and their pride. And then he ends with this gospel proclamation, as you point out, and it's beautiful. And, and you pointed out an important point that he does address them here as brothers. You know that although he has pointed out a number of things that where they've uh, kind of gone off track in their church, um, in some cases as individuals, in some cases as uh, a church family, that he still is regarding them as uh, as as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so he's addressing them as fellow believers, and that's also setting an example for us, reminding us that. Um, whether we're thinking about others who we might see um, not on the same page in our beliefs or going off track in one direction or another, or if, when we see ourselves doing that, because we all do that, uh, to remind ourselves that that's that it's not um, that that does not mean that we are no longer that we've fallen away from the faith. It does not mean that we are no longer, you know, uh, 
a member of the family of Christ, that uh, this, is a, this is a family made up of sinners. Um, and so uh, just as he's addressing them as, uh, yes, as sinners, but as forgiven, redeemed sinners, as brothers, uh, we need to remember that that is true for, for us and for the fellow members of our church family also. Yeah, this is coming at an important time in the letter. In the previous chapter, Paul spoke of orderly worship. He talked specifically about the spiritual gifts of prophecy and tongues and how they must be used to build up the church of God. And he speaks of all these things being done decently and in order. And, you know, if they're looking at that thinking, well, gosh, if I don't do these things perfectly or if I haven't done them perfectly, I'm going to be outside the household of faith. And he, he reminds them that that is not the case. One thing, whenever I'm teaching any uh, Bible account to parishioners, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, and if we're dealing with patriarchs of the faith like Abraham or Moses, or if we're dealing with the apostles such as Peter or Paul, or if we're just dealing with Christians of the early church, I like to remind the people in the study that these people in the Bible are real people. You know, these aren't fictional stories. They're not fables designed to teach a heavenly message like a parable. These are real people. And because they are real people, they have real struggles, real sins. And we can find ourselves in the list of the things Paul admonishes them for. Now, you know, hopefully we're not in some of these more egregious sins, but we can find ourselves somewhere over the past few months on this show as we've looked at each chapter. So, yeah, you know, we've, we've certainly all been convicted in ways that say, you know, if I were there, I would deserve to hear this admonishment from God through Paul. But more important than that, you know, the gospel in which you stand, in which you are being saved, that is what we must hold fast to. You know, the presumption here, and, and you may disagree, but the presumption that I have is that here Paul is expecting that by this point, the Holy Spirit, this point in the letter, the Holy Spirit has convicted them and they would be seeking forgiveness. This isn't preaching gospel to ears who are still secure in their sins. This is a message for those who have recognized that what they have done or what they've been doing is not the way God wants them to live. And so they're hungry for that gospel. Yeah, he has, he has confidence in the word of God. And so he knows that the word that he has been uh, delivering them to them, you know, given him uh, through the Holy Spirit is a living and active word. And he is trusting that the Holy Spirit has been working through that word to, uh, to cut them, to bring them to repentance and uh, draw them back in faith. And so, yeah, he does have a confidence in, in the message that he's preaching. And he also, um, it's also, I think, important to see that in this message, although he has been correcting them in a number of ways where it was necessary, he's also making clear that he himself is as much a sinner as anybody else, that he's just as dependent on God's grace and the gospel of salvation in Christ as anybody else. And we see this in these verses where he talks about his own unworthiness and how he had uh, formerly persecuted the church of God. And so he's not somebody who's uh, sitting up above the people, looking down on them and um, kind of tisking over over their sins, but he's um, identifying with them as a fellow redeemed sinner and pointing out that just as they have needed to hear the law, um, to be brought to repentance and uh, restored in faith, that he had, um, as much as anybody else, had, had uh, needed to hear that law from the Lord himself. 
And uh, that's what prepared him for this great gospel that he received and that, that he has now delivered to them and is now reminding them of. That's important for us to remember, too. As we go out in our lives and we want to proclaim God's law and his gospel to others, you know, the law, it works on us, too. When pastors get up there and preach, sometimes, you know, you know what it is? It's that I have to figure out what sin I need to be forgiven for and preach against that. Because then surely there are other people out there that have experienced the same sin or struggle with the same sin. Again, not to disqualify us from the office, but just the reality that we are all sinners and we are all needful of what God gives. And so whenever we are in our daily lives, average Joe or Jane Christian, we see things that are against God's will. And you're right. We take a cue from St. Paul here when when we go to others and we say with uh, God's law, it's not for the purposes of humiliating them. Or even as Paul says, you know, I, I, I don't say this to your shame, even though later in his letter he does say some things to their shame. But it is so that they can be saved, so that they can turn from that and return to the Lord. And that is what Paul does here. And he does it so eloquently because he claims he's not coming with eloquent speech and worldly wisdom, but he certainly uses the gifts that he's been given as an orator to bring the message to the people. So he brings the message to those who need to hear it and when they need to hear it. And the Corinthians, if you guys at home have been listening, you know the Corinthians are so similar to the world that we live in today. And so these Corinthian Christians are living in a world that is calling them to constantly join back in with the pagan ways or go back to the philosophy of the age. And Paul here in verse 2 says, you know, you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, pastor, that holding fast to the word, I don't think Paul's saying that you have to do something in order to be saved, but what is he saying here? Yeah, well, he's emphasizing the message that it really is, it is the gospel that saves. That is, as he says in Romans, you know, it's the, the gospel, the power of salvation for all who believe. And since salvation is in Christ, which we receive through the gospel, then that salvation is found in the gospel. So we need to remain where that gospel is found, remain where, uh, where Christ is coming to us with his gifts of forgiveness, life, and salvation. Um, and so just as the Lord has brought us to himself, and we're now by his grace uh, standing in this faith, that we are called to uh, remain with Christ, to abide in him. Um, because when we do that, we're abiding in the gospel. We're standing there in this good news of salvation that we never could have earned, uh, but that he's freely giving us. And so it's to keep on treasuring that good news and to see it as the great gift that it is, that it is the power of salvation for us. Um, and this is not, again, as you were saying, it's not so much about what we do, but it's about treasuring what we have, that this gospel is uh, where Christ comes to us. And uh, gives us himself and every gift and every blessing that is found in him. And so to just treasure and hold on to that gift that we have. And so um, also where he describes it, in, you know, the, he has the theme of you know, running with perseverance, the race set before us. But even there, he says, keeping our eyes focused on Christ. You know? And so it's basically continuing to see what we have in Christ and uh, treasuring it. And as you treasure it, then you're holding on to it, holding fast in it. I like what you said. It's not so much what we do, but what we have. And I love that because he uses that language here, too, about what you received. He was the preacher. But in verse 3, he talks about how he received it, too. And if we were to go all the way back to chapter 11 in Corinthians, 
you know, he's speaking, it was in the context of head coverings, but he says, now I commend you because you do remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And that's the history of the Christian church. It's not to change as the times go, but to build upon the foundation, which is Jesus Christ. As Paul says earlier in this, but that building must be done, so to speak, with the materials that God gives you. We can't supplement what has been passed down to us with things that we just find are more preferable or easy to get along with the world because of. And so he has this focus on holding fast and for this being the message that's delivered, not something that he invented. And in verse three, he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So as he's talking about these things being passed down, is he talking about things passed down through the other prophets and apostles? Is this specifically what he received from Jesus Christ in that, you know, coming to Jesus moment that he experienced? Maybe a little bit of both. Uh, talk about that. You know, help me expand upon that. What do you know? Yeah, I would say it's a bit of both. Now, he is emphasizing, as you said, he's emphasizing here that the gospel is not something that originated with him. It's a, it's a message that he was blessed to receive and that now he's blessed, been blessed to share with them. Uh, but it's not something that um, he developed or that originated with him. He himself was the recipient of this message. And in terms of where he received it, uh, who he received it from, uh, in Galatians, in the first chapter of Galatians, Paul does emphasize that this message that he's bringing, the gospel that he's bringing, is not something that he learned uh, from man, but he says that he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he himself originally received the gospel, uh, the good news of who Jesus Christ really is and what he's really done uh, from Christ himself, from the risen Christ himself. But he also does go on and say that um, later he did visit with some of the apostles. Uh, he mentions Peter and James and had that time with them where he also uh, got that affirmation, reaffirmation that this gospel that he had received was the same gospel that they had been given, that they had received and that they were preaching. And so he did receive it originally uh, from Christ himself, but he also had uh, that affirmation from his fellow apostles that, yes, this is the same gospel that they preach, that they have been blessed to receive. And so uh, that it is the same gospel, that there is no other gospel. It's, it's interesting that you use that phrase, there is no other gospel, because this morning before we came on the air, I was teaching my morning Bible study class and we're covering right now just some different religions, how they relate and how we can witness to people who follow these different religions. And we talked about Mormonism today and their belief of progressive revelation, how each new prophet that comes into their church can override or supplant what the previous prophet said. And that makes it very convenient to keep up with the times, so to speak. And so naturally, I held up the Book of Mormon and I said, all you really need to know about Mormons is in terms of whether or not they are Christians is found right here on the cover of their own scriptural text. And it says, the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ. So this is not something that was passed down. It was something that was created, that was brought in later. And so I like how you pointed out that Paul doesn't just go around saying, okay, I'm an apostle, Jesus has appeared to me, and therefore you have to respect me as an apostle, something he had trouble with anyway. But I, he illustrates it differently. He goes to the uh, other apostles and says, I'm not saying that you should believe me because Jesus appeared to me, but this is what he revealed. 
this is what I received and I'm delivering it to people. And this confirms with that is the same as what the rest of the church has been teaching. What Paul is teaching isn't a new thing. And it's Paul himself, of course, who later says that if anyone, if I or even an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what has been revealed already, let him be accursed. And this is not the first time he's used that language. Yeah, he's setting a great example for for us, for the whole church, that um, the focus is not on, just his focus wasn't on him and his his own wisdom or his own winsomeness. Uh, The same is to be true for us, that what we have to offer really is what we have received. And so what we have to offer is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which brings Jesus Christ himself and all of his blessings. Uh, And what greater gift could we bring to somebody? Um, And so we are to uh, treasure what we've received and faithfully pass it on, not adding anything to it or subtracting anything from it, uh, but uh, doing for others as others have first done for us, passing on the same message that began with the Lord himself, that he sent out through his apostles, uh, which has been preserved and passed down to us. And so you know, it is a great treasure. And so we are to uh, not think that we can improve on it or that it needs anything added to it, uh, but we are to treasure it ourselves and help others to see what a treasure it is for them too. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's, it can be tempting sometimes to think that uh, we need to have a more innovative message to tell something new that could um, spark their attention. But there is, we, we can never improve on the gospel. You know, we've been, we've been given the perfect message to give to people. And so uh, like Paul, we should deliver uh, to others what we ourselves have received. Speaking of that perfect message, he sums it up well in verses three and following when he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's verses three and four. Now, he doesn't shortchange Christ's death and resurrection, or I'm sorry, his uh, Christ's death and burial, but he's going to spend a lot of time on that within his letters. But this particular part of the letter focuses on the resurrection. And it also focuses on this being a fulfillment of scriptures. Now, we have a few minutes before the break, and I do want to get to the resurrection how the resurrection seems to be a neglected aspect of our belief. I mean, it's getting some resurgence, thankfully, on the Lutheran scene, but you still don't hear a lot about it. You know, we hear a lot about dying and going to heaven and that sort of thing. We even hear about Jesus's resurrection, but rarely our own. Now, we are going to get to that, and I just want to put that on the table, but why is Paul emphasizing that all of these things are in accordance with the scriptures? Well, he's emphasizing that what Christ has now done for us, you know, the, the good news of what Christ has done for us is exactly what God had promised he would do for us. Uh, God had promised um, a Savior who would come, who, who would suffer and die for us, who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, uh, so that by his wounds we would be healed. Uh, but he did also speak about how you know, he would not abandon his Holy One to the grave or uh, leave them to decay in Psalm, Psalm 16. Uh, and even, even in... Um, Isaiah 53, where you hear about this Savior uh, suffering and dying for our sins, it also the chapter actually ends on a message of victory. And you see, see the same thing in Psalm 22, where the psalm overall is a is a very poignant depiction of uh, representation of the true suffering that the Messiah would go through for us. But then it ends with him talking about how he will 
declare God's praises in, in the company of his brothers and how people would praise God for what he has done here and saying God has done it, that he has accomplished uh, salvation in this. And so um, this is a, the, the complete message of both what the Savior would go through in order to save us and also of the victory that he does then win for us. I think sometimes we do, um, I, I know sometimes I as a pastor have um, neglected the message of resurrection sometimes, partly because the message of what Christ did on the cross and his suffering death is such a wonderful message. You know, this is um, a life-changing, world-changing message of that is where our sins were paid for. That's where atonement was made. Uh, that's where we see the love of God uh, in its fullness. And so uh, we rightly treasure that message so much that Unfortunately, sometimes we can actually uh, kind of stop there and not go on to talk about the victory over death and, and grave that Christ won for us and uh, the life that we, you know, he, he died to save us and now he gives us eternal life. And that life is the life that we see in his resurrection. Um, and so just as and Paul, uh, you could say, it's actually kind of tying together the, the significance of Good Friday and, and Easter together. Um, we know that you can't really appreciate Easter, uh, the light of Easter, unless you've uh, contemplated or passed through the darkness of Good Friday. Um, but also it would be incomplete to just stop at Good Friday and not go on to celebrate uh, Christ's victorious resurrection on Easter. Uh, and you see that in 1 Corinthians where Paul, you'd say in chapters uh, chapter 1 and, and chapter 2, really focuses on Christ crucified, that this is the Savior who died for us. We bring the message of the cross, that that's where our salvation was won. But now as he's coming to the close of his letter, he, he does point back again to Christ having uh, died on the cross for our sins, but also does uh, really close with an emphasis on the resurrection, uh, that this was, uh, that this is, we see here the, the victory that Christ has indeed won for us. You could say he won, won it for us on the cross, but we see the fullness of that victory uh, in his resurrection. And it's in that resurrected life that uh, we have, we, we see the eternal life that we have in him. And so they really, it's, um, to, you can't fully appreciate one without looking at the other, the, the death, the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A hundred percent, right? I always think of the crucifixion as an event, right? It's his perfect life that makes the crucifixion valuable in any way to forgive our sins. And the fact that he's God crucifying himself and his perfect life but what good would God be if he didn't rise from the dead? So the resurrection, that is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which was a common phrase among Lutherans, it's it's very important because that's the cross event. Absolutely. I'll tell you what, I do want to keep this conversation going, but right now we are up against a break. So we're going to take just a few moments and listen to these messages Dear listener, don't go anywhere. In just a few minutes when we return with uh, Pastor Stinnett, we're going to keep our conversation on the resurrection and 1 Corinthians 15 going. We'll see you on the other side. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches, where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors? What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church free of charge to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723.
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me today is the Reverend Aaron Sinet, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church of Smithfield, Rhode Island. Now, pastor, before the break, we were just getting into the conversation about the resurrection in particular and how it's important to our understanding the whole gospel message, not just Jesus's perfect life, which fulfills the law on our behalf, not just his death on the cross, which he took that we deserve, but that resurrection from the dead. And that seems to be the emphasis of Paul in our remaining verses. So just so that they are refreshed on our mind, I'd like to read the text again. I'm going to skip the first few verses and keep with verse 4 through 11. Here we go. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. I like how the, he puts that there. He, he's sure to say that most of them are still alive, though, though some have fallen asleep. Some have passed away. But the fact that some are still alive is important, right? He wants them to be able to check his bona fides. At least that's how I've always understood it. Yeah, he's making clear here that the resurrection is not something that he's asking them to believe based on, say, just his own personal vouching for it. But there, there are many eyewitnesses. You know, uh, we read in the beginning of Acts that Jesus uh, showed uh, many convincing proofs to his to his apostles after he had risen to show that he truly um, had risen. That this was a bodily resurrection, um, and you see, so here. When, with Paul, especially when he mentions you know the, the appearance to the five hundred, most of whom were still alive, part of his point there is you can still you can go talk to these eyewitnesses, you know, ask them yourself what they saw, uh, compare their stories, you know that this is um, that, that we are presenting this as uh, as a true historical fact that happened, and so we invite people. He welcomes people to investigate it to talk to those who saw it, and he is emphasizing that he does acknowledge that he was blessed to see the risen Christ, um, but he's emphasizing that it's that he's not just asking them to take uh, his personal word for it. This is something witnessed, as he says, by, uh, by all the apostles. You know, he begins with uh, uh, Peter. He goes on to you know, the whole group of apostles um, on Easter evening. Um, and when, even when you look at those appearances, uh, one thing, you know, we do see Jesus giving many convincing proofs that this was, he's not just, say, just appearing in the spirit, but this is a bodily resurrection. Uh, so, for example, when he, even when he appeared to the disciples in the upper room, um, he's there with them, and he he asks if they have anything to eat, you know, and they give him a piece of fish, and he eats it. And this is, but and he also shows them the wounds in his hands and his side where he would have been pierced. Uh, but he's uh, showing them again and again that this is that he truly has risen from the dead. That this is a, a resurrection in the body, and uh, and as Paul is emphasizing here, you know, this has been witnessed not only by him, but by many. And he encourages them to uh, go check it out for themselves, which is something we want all people to do. You know, uh, if, you, if somebody is skeptical about the message of Christ, just come and look into it. Um, you know, of course, now, 
we can't reason somebody into faith, um, but as they look into it, it also does give a chance for them to be hearing the word of God that the Holy Spirit can work through to bring them to faith. Uh, but this is actually one of the unique things of, of the Christian faith, that we are uh, we are a faith that is based on very specific historical claims, that we really are saying, you know, our hope um, is based on the truth that certain things, certain people did certain things at certain places at certain times, and we are committed to that as the truth. And so, and foremost among that would be the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so he really is emphasizing, you know, this is... Um, a foundational truth that that our whole faith is built on. Later in this chapter, he goes on to say, you know, if, if Jesus isn't risen, hasn't risen from the dead, then you know we're we're still in our sins. We're lost. We're hopeless. You know? And so um, this is really foundational. And, and so he wants he's emphasizing this is truth. It is fact, and it's something that is that again, just like the gospel did not originate with him, uh, this part of the gospel message is also not something that originated with him, but it is uh, the message of. Uh, all the other apostles who saw him risen, and of many other witnesses who saw him risen. Signs and wonders were performed by Jesus to accompany his message, and that, that was not uncommon. And the ability to perform miracles, even by those first apostles and disciples, was also not uncommon. The point was to bolster their prophetic message about Jesus. And here he is emphasizing the same thing. And I like how you noted that you know this happened to real people. It's not a spiritual rising from the dead. It's not something they imagined or a vision. And Jesus didn't need to eat, and yet he ate. Um, he didn't, in his resurrected body, need to have retained his wounds, but he did that for the benefit of those who would be convinced by them. Now today, you know, there are those who are outside of the faith. They may mockingly say, well, you know, if Jesus would just show himself today, then we will believe. Or why did he come way back then? If he came today, then we would have all of this evidence because we could record it. We'd have video and all of this sort of thing. But the problem with that, and we call it the scandal of particularity, right? That it's a scandal that God chose a particular place in a particular time in which to appear. It's a scandal from our understanding. But he did that according to his own good and gracious will. He did it at the perfect time. But we in our sinful natures would say, oh, if only he would do it now. And I've read somewhere that, you know, evidence does not convict. It does not convict in matters of faith because we'll just dismiss them, even if he were to appear today. Yeah, we saw that actually. Uh, the gospel reading for, for many of us this, this last Sunday was uh, Jesus speaking about the rich man and Lazarus. And, you know, uh, and, and Lazarus finds himself in torment in Hades. And he, he calls out asking Abraham to send um, Lazarus to the rich man's brothers, you know, to uh, basically warn them so they don't end up where he himself is. And the answer he's given is, well, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they have the scriptures. Let them listen to them. And then the rich man says, well, basically, no, that won't be enough. But if somebody comes, you know, from the dead and tells them, that's then they'll believe, you know. And everyone says, you know, if if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, that is, if they don't listen to God's word, the scriptures, then they wouldn't believe even if somebody came back from the dead. And so he's making there the point that even, you know, seeing a, a resurrected person uh, will not uh, convince somebody who has been who has hardened themselves against the Lord. I love that passage. Um, by the time this airs, by the way, it will have been a few weeks since that one. But yeah, they focus on this. And I love it's Jesus's words being put into Moses's mouth in that passage. 
You know, they wouldn't believe even if someone should rise from the dead. And he knew that he would go on to rise from the dead. And he also knew that people would still not be convinced. And that rising from the dead is what's happening right here in this text. I've always wondered, though, brother, about the 500 brothers at one time. You know, that's something I really haven't looked into a lot, but it's a fascinating idea. But this is the only place, if I'm not mistaken, that this is even mentioned. No, we're not. Um, we don't hear another specific reference to that large of a crowd seeing the risen Jesus. Some I've heard some speculation that it could have been at the time of you know, the Great Commission, when Jesus gave the Great Commission in Galilee, um, because we're not told. We know the disciples were there. We don't know how many others might have been there. So I know there's been, when people try to guess if there's another uh, resurrection appearance in the Bible that might be this one, that one is sometimes brought up. But this could just be another resurrection appearance that simply is not recorded elsewhere in scripture. You know, John says in his gospel about, you know, how Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this book, you know. And so this would include also, you know, there have been any number of resurrection appearances that aren't recorded in the book. Uh, we're told enough to know, uh, to hear what we need to know, that Jesus is the Christ, uh, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, we have faith in his, uh, uh, have life in his name. But um, we know that much more happened than has been recorded. And as John said, you know, basically all the books in the world couldn't contain everything that Jesus did. And so um, even, even when here Paul is listing these resurrections, he mentions uh, uh, an appearance to James, you know, the brother of the Lord. And that's also one where we're not told the details of, you know, how and where and exactly when that happened. So th that does in itself show us that there are other resurrection appearances that aren't specifically recorded for us in scripture. I would say that it also speaks to the idea that it's not about having all of our intellectual curiosity satisfied by evidence. We have these signs that accompany the message, which is commonly understood. You even have the story of unbelieving Thomas who refused to believe unless it was proven to him. And Jesus certainly accommodated the weakness of these people's faith or the necessity of the time. But in these last days, we have his word. I, I was just talking about the similar subject with the Bible study group. And one person after the class, one of the parishioners, mentioned to me the Shroud of Turin. And uh, he says, do you believe that that is real? And I said, well, actually, I, I don't necessarily I think it's a very interesting curiosity. For those who don't know, there is in Turin, Italy, there's a shroud that purportedly has been permanently and indelibly marked with the image of Jesus because it was the shroud that covered his face in the tomb. And I guess when he was resurrected, it, it implanted his image on it and it connects in that way. And he said, well, I believe it. And I said, well, okay, you know, I don't think this is a faith crushing, you know, faith dividing disagreement here. But he was surprised that I didn't, and I came upstairs, and I talked to my DCE, and I said, what do you think? And she said, no, I, I don't really buy into it either, um, and then I talked to another parishioner or two. Anyway, the point is, I said, listen, I don't want to sound you know, overly suspicious about it, but the problem with any kind of relic is that if they are true, then people will tend to put their faith, hope, and trust in that thing as opposed to the clear word. And so I just assume it's not true because the word is so much more solid, so much more valuable, so much more sturdy upon which to base our faith. In fact, it's the only foundation. So it doesn't even seem worth looking into because we have all that we need to believe in Christ in the word. 
And you cannot be convinced of this faith because Christianity is not a volunteer religion. It's one you must be called to by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel, which Paul emphasizes here in this text. Yeah, basically the church is built on you know, the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the as the chief cornerstone. It's not built on, on it's not built on relics. Yeah. And so it is built on Christ and the message of Christ. It's the power of his word. Now it is um when we do hear, say, of archaeological discoveries that um do show, demonstrate, you know, historical reliability of certain claims in scripture, that's great to hear and it's great to be able to share pe- with people. But ultimately it is um it is Again, it is the gospel that has the power of salvation. It is the word that God works through to create um, and sustain faith. Um, and so the church, again, needs to be focused on sharing the word. Um, and again, just like Paul, you know, delivering to others what we have received. And what we've received is, you know, whether relics have been passed down or not, the important thing we've received is the word. And so that is what we treasure and pass down to others. And that is where the power for salvation is. So that's where we want to focus people and to keep ourselves focused. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. It's a beautiful turn of phrase, if not wrought with disappointment. You can hear it in Paul's voice. And he knows, and he mentions it here in a minute, that he persecuted the church. He genuinely laments, and he he seems to have a hard time escaping that. And it's his repentance, and I'm not saying that he didn't accept the forgiveness of Christ because of it, but it just seems like he's carrying it around a lot longer than God did. You know, the same one who proclaims to us the complete erasure of our sins, even from the memory of God, here's St. Paul, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you can tell it still bothers him. And he certainly desired to have been among the first, whether that's because he longs to be considered more highly than he is from the other apostles and Christians for whom he's always having to defend his apostleship. You know, if you read the start of most of his letters, it just he, it's it's he's talking about how he's a, a genuine apostle called by God or if it's just a desire to have been with Christ longer. I don't know, but it's a fascinating phrase. Yeah, well, I think his awareness of where he was, you know, who he was when the risen Christ came to him on the road to Damascus, you know, that awareness of who he was, what he'd been doing, what he'd been saved from um, just magnified for him the greatness of what Christ had done for him. Um, it's, it's in seeing the, the greatness, you know, the, it's in being, seeing what Christ has done for him, despite his complete unworthiness that he sees, uh, the glory of that grace. You know, he's, he, it's, that's what causes him to be amazed by God's grace. And so it's when he, when he sees himself, like he says in first Timothy, when he talked about himself being, you know, foremost or chief of sinners, um, that, that for him, that magnifies, uh, helps him see all that much more clearly, the greatness of God's grace. And he also, I think part of why he comes back to that a number of times in his writings is so that others can see that they are not beyond the reach of God's grace too. You know, you know if you were to think of somebody who, who God uh, could seem justified in giving up on, you know, well, um, Paul was that person, you know, he was the person who was set out to destroy the church. And yet um, God uh, came to him. You know, Paul wasn't looking for Jesus, but Jesus was looking for Paul. And he came and found him on the road to Damascus, chose him to be his and saved him. And so seeing that God would do that uh, for, as Paul described himself, you know, an insolent opponent, you know, blasphemer, he describes himself as, um, that he would do it for him. Then that Paul is hoping that everybody can then see, well, gee, then maybe he would do it. Or then he, yes, he would do that even for me, despite my sins that I'm aware of and that I'm troubled by. 
whether other people know those sins or not. You know, he wants people to see that the God who would save a man like him is a God who will have mercy and grace on us. Um, in fact, in, uh, in the passage in First Timothy, where it's the well-known verse uh, where he refers to himself as uh, the chief of sinners, you know, of course, which, which, which you know, from which we get a, a wonderful hymn. Um, but in the very next verse, he talks about how God did this uh, so that um, God to dis- could display to others his perfect patience, uh, so that as others would see that this is the kind of Savior he is. And so uh, that's part of why Paul keeps not trying to hide his sins, or um, but, but actually to almost shine a light on them, but, but not, to sh- not really to focus on himself, but to focus people on the greatness of what Christ did for him, so that they can see that that is the same kind of Savior who will do that, who does that for them too. I think it's worth reading that passage that you just referenced. This is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, to the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Just a a beautiful prayer, and that's one that we can really take home as gospel, right? If Christ can save someone like Paul and really not just save him, but then use him as a minister to the Gentiles, as the writer of most of the New Testament books, then he can certainly do something with us. And that goes back to that message that I began. I talked about it at the beginning of the show. You know that when you look at Moses and Abraham, the lives of Jacob, the lives of the prophets, when you look at the apostles and some of the struggles they had, yet, yes, these are real people. We might put them on a pedestal, so to speak. We might put them on our stained glass windows, but it's not because of the worth inside of them so much as the amazing things that God was able to accomplish through poor, miserable sinners, as we Lutherans like to say. And and Luther, you know, says it right. Christ came to save sinners, so you better be one. And this isn't a license to sin, but a license to recognize that God is powerful. He can work even through you. Yeah, and it was the greatness of what um, of what the Lord had done for Paul that really, um, you could say, moved or motivated Paul in his ministry, too. You know, he talks about, towards the end of this reading that we're focusing on, he talks about... Um, having worked harder than, than other apostles and so on. And uh, kind of on first blush, it can sound almost like he's kind of building himself up here. Um, now, he does, of course, go on to say that it, was, um, that it was not I, he says, but the grace of God that was with me. But when he talks about how, um, how hard he worked for the Lord, I think he's actually presenting that as, um, it reminds me of, of this uh, story in Luke 7, where Jesus is being anointed by a sinful woman and um, there's this Pharisee there who is uh, grumbling to himself that, that Jesus would allow this to happen, would allow a sinner like her to, uh, to touch him. And when Jesus then addresses that, that Pharisee, he, he says basically, his explanation is, 
when you see how much love she's showing me, this is a paraphrase, when you see how much love she's showing me, it's, it's because she, she realizes how much she's been forgiven. You know, that one, he says, one who has been forgiven much loves much. And so I think that's what uh, led him to work so hard was he realized just how much he had been forgiven, that this was uh, not somebody who had, you know, left the boats behind to go and follow Jesus for three years, but this was somebody who had been out seeking to destroy the church that Christ came to. And so, you know, kind of like that sinful woman uh, in, in Luke 7, uh, Paul saw just, you know, the, uh, how much he had been forgiven. And that, uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit, you know, produced a gratitude within him that then showed in the work uh, that God did through him. Uh, so the work was an expression of his gratitude and love for what Christ had done for him. That's definitely a good way to look at it. I mean, I would still contend a little bit. I understand the first blush idea, but I'd still say that a bit of Paul's personality pops through. You know, if this guy was formerly a Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees, he's had positions of authority. He may very well struggle with a little bit of boasting, which I actually think is a nice example because we see how he can fall into that, but then turn it back to Christ. So I think either explanation or both, or, or you know, probably part of this is in 2 Corinthians uh, eleven twenty three. He says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. And in verse 12, 11, he says, I've been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. So I think that Paul does suffer a little bit from inferiority complex, maybe, partly because he has to struggle so hard to receive the same commendations and recognitions, even though his goal is not to commend himself, but Christ. We know that for sure. There's no doubt about it. But I do think he kind of slips in there a little bit, a little humble brag now and then. But I definitely like this reality, which is unquestionable, that you brought up. That behind his working hard, behind his frustrations, it's not to be recognized for the work that he's done because he is so indebted to Christ and he desires to make it clear that he is there for the gospel, for them since the beginning. Yeah, and, and he, um, there is reality that you know he did, of course, you know, God is the one who strengthened him, but there was um, a lot of suffering that he endured as he lists in 2 Corinthians. Um, and so... Well, actually, in Second Corinthians, it was an interesting example of his boasting because he's kind of contrasting himself to some false teachers who had come into Corinth and were kind of trying to impress and succeeding in impressing some people with, you know, their eloquence or their winsomeness, uh, just uh, their uh, how they handled themselves. You know, they were impressive people, um, and he says, "Okay, well, that's the, that's their credentials, okay, uh, but here's my credentials, you know." I've been beaten. I've been stoned and left for dead. I've been shipwrecked. I've, you know, been hit with a rod, you know, the maximum number of times. And basically it's, um, it's, those are kind of unusual things to boast about, but it's basically indicating, you know, the, the faithfulness to Christ is seen not in um, making ourselves seem impressive, but in taking up our crosses and following Christ, so, you know, strengthened by Christ uh, to do that. And so that, that's kind of the hallmark of, uh, say, faithful ministry is that willingness to, uh, to take up and carry the cross. And, it's, and I would say not really so much. Uh, I understand what you're saying, but I'm, I don't think his focus there certainly is, uh, is genuine boastfulness, but is to, to get people to think about what are the things to look for in a faithful servant of the Lord. 
Um, and it's not um, eloquence, um, but it is uh, faithfulness. And so, yeah, if he can serve it as an example of that, then great. But the focus is, I think, not primarily wanting them to focus on him, but to get them to, to think again, you know, what is, uh, what should we look for? What are the signs of, of, of a faithful messenger? And so it's not somebody with a new message, but somebody who's uh, faithfully delivering to others what he had himself received. It's not necessarily somebody who seems glorious or um, has a special way with words, uh, but somebody who uh, proclaims the gospel um, and uh, is willing to suffer to get that gospel to people. And so, um, yeah, sometimes, that, you know, because he is an example of that, then he sometimes um, uses himself as an example. But again, he does that not to glorify himself, but to uh, but to kind of redirect uh, people's thinking to um, what this life is of of taking up our cross and following Christ. And even when he does, you know, there's a there's a great verse in in uh, the first chapter of Colossians where he's talking again about um, uh, the work uh, of ministry, and he says. Uh, this is Colossians 1.29. He says, uh, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so it's, you know, he does, you know, he's toiling, but it's not with his own energy. It's with the Lord's energy. And it's not him working it. It's the, it's the energy that the Lord is working within him. So um, he's also then see, uh, kind of presenting himself as an example of how God can work through imperfect instruments like like him and like us, uh, that just as God reaches out and saves uh, poor, miserable sinners like him and like you and me, uh, so also God can work through those sinners who he has called and redeemed and uh, work through them to um, do the kinds of things that we see in Paul of bringing the God, sharing God's message and his mercy um, uh, with those around them. But ultimately, it's just another way actually of pointing people to what Christ is doing. Folks at home, this is just the prelude to what Paul will be continuing to talk about as we go through 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Two more episodes on this chapter and on the topic of the resurrection. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Aaron Stinnett, pastor of Our Redeemer Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Rhode Island. Thank you, pastor, for being on the show. Uh, Thank you, pastor, for having me. I can't wait till you're on again. I hope that you accept our invitation next time it comes around. And thank you too, listener, for tuning in to Thy Strong Word. I've been your host, Pastor Phil Boo. Tune in tomorrow as we discuss 1 Corinthians, the second half of chapter 15. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in Thy Strong Word. Thy Strong Word.